Hello, everyone, and welcome to B Sides, the place for everything between Sundays. Pastor Mike finished Second Kings for us on Sunday, which means we are done. We are done with the Kings, and we are moving on to Jeremiah next. Why Jeremiah? That's what I seek to answer in this episode. I will then also answer a question that has been addressed about Bible translations, and that will be this week's episode. So why Jeremiah next, and not the book of Chronicles, as it is in your Bible? I have three reasons. First, I'm going to read an excerpt from the excellent book, Dominion and Dynasty, A Theology of the Hebrew Bible by Stephen G. Dempster, and then I'll give you the three reasons. He envisions the Hebrew Bible, known as the Tanakh, as happening in three parts, the beginning, middle, and end. The beginning is the narrative of Israel's history from Genesis through Kings. We see their creation and their fall. The middle is commentary on that fall, the exile. It's got all the prophets and some of the books of writing, like the Psalms. And then the end is some of the other writings, where Israel begins to return to the land and some other thoughts about uh, the future and a hope that they have. So one uh, clear example is that Chronicles, where it's after Kings in our Bible, is actually the very last book of the Hebrew Bible. And that's because through this long story of Israel claiming the land and losing it, and then the middle part with the prophets talking about how it's gone and because of idolatry, but it's going to come back one day, they end their Bible with the hope that they will once again have kings in the land. So Chronicles becomes that symbol, not only a book of history of the kings that did rule the land, but this hope at the close of their Bible that we will once again have kings ruling in this land. But it's the middle part that we're coming to, because we just ended the first part, Genesis through Kings. We saw the narrative, the creation of the world, the exodus from Egypt, the creation of a new nation, its claiming of its new land, the rise of its kings, then the fall of these kings as the kingdom crumbles and goes into exile. So now we come to the middle part, where we're going to have prophets and psalms. So let me read to you his uh, little paragraph here on the middle of the Tanakh, the part we're entering in Jeremiah. A clearly defined middle carries the storyline between the beginning and the ending of the canon. This historical sequence of events, from Genesis to Kings, is disrupted by a body of poetic literature that functions to provide a pause in the storyline to reflect on the tragedy of the exile, its causes, and its significance. It is here that a profound dialogue occurs in which God addresses Israel in the first person through the voice of the prophets. And Israel addresses God in the first person through the voices of the psalmists. This I-thou pause provides important perspective on the story backward in retrospect, and forward in prospect. So, as we have finished Kings, that's where we are. And we're now going to see through the prophets, we're going to hit the four. We're going to hit Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve minor prophets viewed as one whole in the Hebrew Bible. 
We're going to hear God speaking to Israel. And then, of course, the Psalms will come and Israel will speak to God. But why Jeremiah? So you may be seeing at this point, okay, okay, it makes sense. The narrative of Israel's history has been told. Now we jump to the prophets and reflection on the exile. But why Jeremiah? In our Bible, Isaiah is the first major prophet. And yes, it's a good question. Because it doesn't seem that there's a clear order at this point. The major prophets come into play here. But it seems in some versions, Isaiah's first. I've even seen Ezekiel and Jeremiah. So what I've done is I'm sticking with this book's commentary on the Hebrew Bible, Dominion Dynasty, uh, that Jeremiah is the first book of this middle section. And I think there's compelling evidence to read Jeremiah first. And so here are my three reasons. First, exile is not God's last word. And that's something that Jeremiah wants to say. Yes, the exile is coming. Oh no, here it is. But then he also has hope for the nation. As he says, as God tells him, uh, when he's calling him to become a prophet, God says to him, see, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, which he does with his prophecies, but then to build and to plant. You see, Jeremiah, yes, talks about the coming exile, but he also says that this is not the end. And he's the one who prophesies that the exile will last 70 years. So Jeremiah shows us, yes, God is doing this, but he's put a limit on this. This, this failure, this, this lack of a king, this, this exile from the land will not be forever. It's temporary. Second, Jeremiah takes us into the experience and trauma of the exile. So we've read in a historical account that Israel goes into exile. They're defeated. But we don't feel the exile. Jeremiah lets us feel it. And there will be more of this in the teachings on Jeremiah itself. But Jeremiah is written in such a way that one can feel the pain of the exile. He takes us on the journey, emotional, experiential journey of loss, of your world being shattered, of fragmented memories, of hurts, of having hurts that have no words. Some of the parts of Jeremiah are just brutally honest as a man in despair is brutally honest. He experiences, or at least he takes us through text that seems to relate to the experience of trauma. And Jeremiah not only talks about the exile, not only does it happen in his book, but he himself experiences it on a microcosmic level where Jeremiah is treated poorly. He becomes a symbol of Jerusalem as the kings becoming symbols of the nations beat Jeremiah up and throw him in a pit and want to try to kill him. So Jeremiah 
turns the history of the exile into an experience. And it calls all of us who've been exiled from our dreams, from our hopes, some of us from our homes, some of us from loved ones, some of us from an identity we used to hold about ourselves or a confidence we've been exiled from something or we've gone through some sort of severance, some sort of pain, some sort of loss. Our world has fallen apart. Jeremiah is inviting all of humanity into this experience. So while we read about a historical exile to a historical people, Jeremiah brings this into a universal human problem. So first, why Jeremiah next? First, exile's not God's last word. Jeremiah confirms that. Second, Jeremiah takes us into the experience and trauma of exile. And then third, here we have some very interesting textual evidence for reading Jeremiah after Kings. And it is as follows. Second Kings ended with these words in chapter 25, verse 27. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. That's how Second Kings ends, with hope. Jehoiachin, Jerusalem's king, now in exile in Babylon, is treated favorably. He's shown mercy. This is the little glimmer of light, the little shard of hope in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the fragmented uh, dreams of Israel. It ends with, ah, but even in exile, God was giving his promises that it won't be like this forever. Okay, that's how Second Kings ends. Listen to how Jeremiah ends. Jeremiah 52, starting in verse 31. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily need until the day of his death as long as he lived. And thus ends Jeremiah. Deja vu? Yeah, if you think that you just heard that passage... It's because you did. Jeremiah ends nearly the exact same way Second Kings ends. One has to assume that Jeremiah copied 
the closure of Second Kings at the end of his book. So, are we meant to read Jeremiah right after Kings? It seems yes. And even more powerfully, it seems that Jeremiah thinks we should. A brief word about how I've structured our teaching of Jeremiah. I'm doing this in 11 messages, which is quite a bit more than we've been going through in Samuel and Kings. We've been just trying to get the overall narrative through Samuel and Kings, and so each book had about three or four messages there. So we are doing Jeremiah in almost the same number of messages that it took us to do First, Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Um, but so the reason for this is because there's actually some markings for us to divide the book in this way. And I'm um, leaning upon the scholarship of Andrew G. Sheed in his book, A Mouth Full of Fire, The Word of God in the Words of Jeremiah. Uh, he has, he has shown that the book is actually a book about the Word of God. It's a narrative about the Word of God spoken through Jeremiah and it happens in four movements. Uh, the first movement is chapters 1 through 24. The second movement is chapters 25 to 34. The third movement is chapters 35 to 44. And the fourth movement is chapters 45 to 52. So we have the book in four movements. Now within each of these movements, uh, he identifies these headings where it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. And this signifies a new message. So apart from... um I believe just the beginning where I actually divide chapter one out of chapters one through six, just because I want to focus on the calling of Jeremiah as its own message. We are basically doing a message on each of Jeremiah's own messages. And now just a little more, these four narratives of the word of God, Andrew Sheed describes like this in the first movement we have The word of the Lord announces Judah's destruction and its speaker is crushed. So the first 24 chapters we see coming doom and Jeremiah is not taking it well. Chapters 25 to 34, the second movement. The word of the Lord vindicates its speaker and offers true hope to deaf listeners. Ooh, that second movement is going to be a very rough read. The third movement, chapters 35 to 44. The word of the Lord destroys the nation it created and plants seeds of new life. So there will be some hope coming through the destruction. And then in movement four, chapters 45 to the end of the book. The word of the Lord sends a tide of judgment across the earth and draws a new nation from the wreckage. And now for a question. Which Bible translation is best, or is there one best over them all? It's a great question. Bible translations can be challenging because some people get really adamant about this translation's the best and all the others lead you astray. <laughs> um, I love using many Bible translations. 
Now, I grew up on the New King James Version. That's what most Calvary chapels have used. That's what my Calvary chapel used. And I even actually, for a time, in high school, believe it or not, read from the King James Version, the old King James Version. And I love both of those translations. But it was when I became a youth pastor, I began to see that the long sentence structure of the New King James was challenging for youth to follow. Like in Paul's letters, Paul... On his own, Paul is hard enough to follow. But then in the New King James, the sentences are long. So I found that by switching to another translation that broke the sentences up into smaller bites, they were able to track a little better. And so that is when I began reading the ESV and switched to that. Primarily because the ESV is very, very close to the New King James Version, just a little bit... um updated for a crisper read. Um, so I've been teaching from the ESV ever since. Um, although that's not the only Bible I read from on my own reading. Now, real briefly, this is how Bible translations work. You can land them somewhere on a spectrum between literal, where the translators are trying to get every single word from the original language to its closest equivalent word in the English language, that's literal, to the other side of the spectrum, which is generally called dynamic. And dynamic is different than literal, as it where literal tries to get word-for-word translations, dynamic tries to get idea-for-idea. So the difference is... Um, there'll be this word in the original language, and they'll say, what's the closest word in English? Ah, heart is the closest word. Um, whereas in dynamic, they say, okay, here's what the sentence says. What is the idea it's communicating? How do we capture that idea in our English language? So it's taking bigger blocks and translating the concept to us. So that's the example of a dynamic. And then, of course, there's anything on that spectrum in between. So I like to break this up very simply into three kinds of translations. So first, if you're looking for a translation that translates the original language as literal as possible, then you probably want to use the New American Standard Bible, NASB, or the New King James Version, NKJV. They are about as close to the original as you can get. Um, if you want a more reader-friendly, yet fairly literal translation, this is the second category. Then look for New International Version, NIV, English Standard Version, ESV, or New Living Translation, NLT. Uh, these are essentially literal, but are willing to rearrange sentence structure or translate one word into several words, or several words into one, in order that the reading makes better sense for the English reader. So you're still pretty much using a literal translation. They're just taking liberties here or there to make the reading experience more pleasurable. And then there's a third category, and this is where we're in more of the dynamic range. Um... They're not considered with translating every single word to its closest English word, but rather they're taking the meaning, as we've already discussed. Um, so examples of this is the message. The message uh, 
may not be your Bible for Bible study, but it does provide an excellent reading Bible if you just want to get a sense for how the original hearers may have read it. Some people also put the New Living Translation in this category, but I actually put that in the second category where it's essentially literal. Um, but that's where this is kind of oversimplified because technically you could say that ESV is somewhere between one and two. It's literal, but it's also a little more reader friendly. And then the New Living Translation is somewhere between two and three where it's essentially literal, but it's also dynamic in places. So all of these fall somewhere in that spectrum. So is one better than the other? Well, the answer is, what are you looking for? Do you want a literal Bible? Then you've got a couple options. Do you want something in the middle? Then you got a lot more options. Um, one translation I wasn't sure of where to put in this is a newer translation called The Voice. And The Voice is interesting because it's a bit of a blend between all three. It will use liberty to rephrase the text in an easy-to-read manner, but it will also let you know when it is doing so by putting those parts in italics. And then it also gets rid of some words, um, not um, like words like he said, they said, and he said to them saying, things like that, because what it does is it puts... Uh, dialogue into a script format. So it'll just have Jesus, and then it'll have his words. It'll say disciples, then it'll have their words, Jesus, their words, disciples, their words. So it reads, in that sense, like a script. And so that's always interesting in the reading aspect. It almost makes it feel more like you're watching it unfold. Um, and then it will sometimes put in little commentaries trying to help you understand the culture right there in the text, but it will put it in different fonts so that you know it's doing that. So it's it's an interesting one. Um, another one that's newer and not as well known, I think it's kind of gaining attention, is the Common English Bible. The Common English Bible I'm bringing up because I think it's an interesting concept and it has made a very pleasant read. And here's how they describe themselves. The Comish, the, excuse me, the Common English Bible is unlike any other translation. It's uncommon in that it's the newest translation by the largest number of biblical scholars and church leaders in words 21st century readers use every day, aligning academic rigor with modern understandably, understandability proven through extensive affirmation with and acting on feedback from hundreds of listeners. So what they did is they took more than 500 readers in 77 groups and field tested their translation with them. So they were getting real feedback from real people who are not scholars. And they were, um, every verse was read aloud in these reading groups where potentially confusing passages were identified, and the translators considered the group's responses and reworked passages were necessary in order to clarify the English meaning from the original languages. So in total, more than 600 people worked jointly to bring the Common English Bible to fruition. And then they um, inform us with this last part, which I thought was interesting because they're taking something into consideration that um, translations in the past haven't had to take into consideration. They say, 
The digital revolution is accelerating changes in language and its everyday usage. The new Common English Bible is written in contemporary idiom at the same reading level as the newspaper USA Today, using language that's comfortable and accessible for today's English readers. This new translation strives to make the Bible reading more clear and compelling for individuals, groups, and corporate worship services. So, I'm not telling you to go switch to that translation, but just letting you know that it's out there and that um, there's a lot of work being done to try to help a society that is increasingly losing its ability to understand and read the Bible and making it accessible. Because let's be honest, there are a ton of words and phrases in our scriptures that have just completely fallen out of society's vernacular. Now, while church people may understand these phrases, and it's great that we continue to use them, we have to be sensitive to the fact that some people don't have a clue what we're talking about. Now, the black sheep in all this is the message. Because I understand that a lot of people have a very bad relationship with the message, mostly because they've heard from preachers uh, rant about how it's corrupting God's word and so forth. Now, on one hand, I understand that. But on the other hand, I question if they've given the message a chance. And if they're considering if the message has a useful place in our churches. And I think it does. I do not think the message should replace your Bible. But I think it would serve as an excellent companion to your Bible. Now, what is the message, you may ask? Well, it's a Bible very loosely translated in modern English. Um, not as loosely as some people make it sound, though. And it's just a great read. It um, One of the things it strives to do is to maintain the poetry that is lost when you translate from one language to another. The author himself is a poet, and so he does a pretty good job with this in places. But let's hear from him. This is a quote from him about why he wrote the message. And I think it would give you some understanding about what it's trying to do. He says, and by the way, the, the author is Eugene Peterson, who actually recently passed away. He says, while I was teaching a class on Galatians, I began to realize that the adults in my class weren't feeling the vitality and directness that I sensed as I read and studied the New Testament in its original Greek. Writing straight from the original text, I began to attempt to bring into English the rhythms and idioms of the original language. I knew that the early readers of the New Testament were captured and engaged by these writings, and I wanted my congregation to be impacted in the same way. I hoped to bring the New Testament to life for two different types of people. Those who hadn't read the Bible because it seemed too distant and irrelevant, and those who had read the Bible so much that it had become old hat. <laughs> As an example of a passage that we'll be reading very soon, Jeremiah 1, I want to show you what he does so that you can see um, how he uses some of his poetic background into the text. So I'm going to read the Jeremiah 1, verse 11 and 12 in the ESV, then I'll read it in the message. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. 
Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Now the message. God's message came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, A walking stick. That's all. And God said, Good eyes. I'm sticking with you. I'll make every word I give you come true. Okay, so you're already noticing that it went from almond branch to walking stick. And then for I am watching over my word to perform it to I'm sticking with you. I'll make every word I give you come true. Now, you might hear that and think, wow, it changed dramatically. But here's what you need to see is it actually didn't change a whole lot. What we're actually seeing is something in the Hebrew text that we don't see in the ESV. The ESV has almond branch, and then God says, for I am watching over my word. What you don't see, it's buried in a footnote in my Bible, is that almond and watching are two Hebrew words which sound very similar. Very similar in the Hebrew. So there's a play on words happening here between almond and watching. So what Eugene Peterson does in the message is he takes the same English word and uses it in two different ways to capture the way it would have felt in Hebrew. So he goes from almond branch to walking stick because as almond and watching are similar, he says, you see a walking stick, good, because I will stick with you. That's the idea in the Hebrew. There's an almond branch. God's going to watch over his word. He's not going to leave it. He's going to see it through. So the message takes the word stick because close to the Hebrew of being a similar word, you see an almond stick. Remember every time you see it, that God's going to stick to his word. He's not going to fail. And so that's an example of what the message is trying to do. Now, again, probably not a great Bible study, um, book because sometimes it's hard to know where you are, what verse you're in, because it doesn't necessarily give you verses. It kind of gives you a bunch of verses in a paragraph. That says this is verses one through ten, and somewhere in there you don't know where verse nine is. It's not easy to study with, and also um, you may not. You and also you may not always have. Um, yeah, you're 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 relying on somebody's interpretation, somebody who's bringing an aspect into the text. So helpful, definitely illuminating. And I think it's it would be a good read for you, but not your primary Bible. So with all of that said, is there a best translation? Nope, there really isn't. Should you, which translation should you read? Depends what you want. But I believe that we should read more than one translation. We should keep God's word getting into us and keep it fresh. And seeing it from different words and different angles may cause you to see the text in a way you've never seen it before. One of the dangers is to get so familiar with it that it stops speaking to us. So every now and then, read the Bible from a different translation. Every time you go to church and do a study, have your translation you're comfortable with. But maybe on your own reading and your devotional time, every year, choose a different translation. And just enjoy the rich message of God's Word. Hope this was somewhat helpful. This is Pastor Brandon with Grace and Gratitude. Thanks for listening.